Uh, what's up, y'all? Uh, welcome back to the Journey Podcast. Uh, it's episode five. Got my guy Kev Span here. Appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Um, Kev was uh, like a mentor to me in high school. Um, coming up, you know, taught me a lot about knowledge of more than basketball and you know the business side of it and the recruiting process and everything. Uh, at one point, Kev was the youngest college coach in America, youngest head coach in America for uh, NCAA. And, uh, you know, so he's been a, a huge uh, impact on a lot of these uh, young kids in Long Island coming up as a mentor and someone to look up to. So uh, uh, what you been up to, Kev? Appreciate you. Oh, man, um, visiting. Visiting back in Long Island. I moved to L.A. about a year ago. Um, I was very fortunate to be a part of a, a sporting event business with my friends. And so um, the last two years, uh, we've done a showcase called Battle on Apple at the Barclays Center. Okay. So I grew up with uh, Danny Green, shout out to my boy Darren Duncan. Um, when Danny became a Laker, we saw an opportunity to look at some of the young talent in California. They had a lot of top players, including uh, Sierra Canyon, um, Mayfair High School, Josh Christopher, Dior Johnson, um, LeBron James Jr. is out there, um, Etiwand is a good team. So um, we saw an opportunity out there to kind of see what was going on the West Coast, bring it back to the East. and. Um, yeah, obviously COVID kind of kind of kind of knocked yeah. some things off, um, but more than that, I still come back to Long Island to see where the game is going and who the next up and coming guys are. Right. So, um, so what you uh, what you been doing at Suicide? I saw with the with all the kids and Absolutely. stuff like that when you was uh, spending yeah. some knowledge to them. Um, Suicide Academy, Hawpaw, Long Island. Um, it's a, a program called First Team Long Island, and um, you know they're doing some great things, getting the kids playing during COVID. 9 to 11 on Sundays, uh, invite only. They invited me last week to speak to some of the kids about um, what it takes to make it a Division One level. Right. So last week I spoke to them for 15, 20 minutes about the behind the scenes things. The dream is one thing, but the execution to get there is something else. Yeah. And I actually uh, got invited back today. So today I kind of put them through some, um, some warm-up drills, some transition stuff. We talked about concepts. Uh, one thing I know about today's game, I think the, the, the players are a lot more skilled. You know, the game Absolutely, is played, yeah. you know, right to left, a lot more side steps, a lot of step backs. The big guys have a lot more perimeter skills. The guards are allowed to shoot the ball a lot more than when I was coming up. Um, but today we put in some concepts. You know, we kind of built up two on one, three on two, four on three. We talked about spacing. And then I really got after the guys about having a defensive presence every single possession. So I think the parents and some of the trainers there picked up some things and we had a good uh, experience today. Yeah, no, that's dope. So, um, yeah, let's. Uh, I want to get right into it with uh, with your journey because mm -hmm. you know I know you've had a yeah. you know a good career with everything. So mm -hmm. yeah, just kind of give us like a rundown coming up from high school yeah. with AAU and everything, and then up until college and you know what went on there, and then after that. I'll keep it real quick, man. I, as I get older, I kind of mastered my story a bit, um, but I just want to always start with passion, passion and opportunity. Um, both my parents are from Wyandanche, New York, born and raised. So I grew up in Wyandanche at a young age, about four four years old. My dad had opportunity career-wise to move to Chicago. And so I grew up in Chicago from 1990 to 2000. Um, I think that was the most beautiful part of my early chapters. I had a chance to watch Michael Jordan dominate. In Chicago, yeah. I watched Mike win six championships for eight years. Um, Chicago, more importantly, what's going on today with the social injustices is a very tough neighborhood. Um, and to survive Chicago, you need instincts. Mm -hmm. And so even as a young kid growing up, um, basketball was really all I had as my parents worked. And, you know, I kind of went to the court and the older guys kind of put an arm over me to make sure I was good. But the thing about Chicago culture is that play hard every single play. And so guys like Pat Beverly, guys like Derrick Rose, guys like Sean Livingston, Iguodala, 
Um, I've, I've known a lot of those guys since I was probably 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. So I got a chance to play. I saw Kevin Garnett play in high school, how he dominated. Um, so I had a Chicago mentality. And then fortunately, my dad's career got very good uh, in the insurance industry. And we moved back to Long Island when I was 14. Okay. But I wasn't a regular 14-year-old. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of was around a lot of guys that played Division One in the parks, in the program. So I always tell people, you know, I'm a New York kid, but I have a lot of Chicago roots. And when I was 14, um, I went to North Babylon High School. And so um, that's when I started becoming a student of the game. And I said, if I want to go Division One, I, I have to know the history of my town. Who went Division One? Who do I seek after? And I was very lucky. Um, to have some athletes make it Division One, and I got real lucky because I met two important people in my life that to this day are very important. Jerry Powell, basketball results. Um, I was a 14-year-old kid working out with Jerry Powell, who at the time was in his early 30s, mm -hmm. and he was best friends with Mike James, who played in the NBA from Amityville. Yep. Uh, he was best friends with Gary Williams, who's a Bayshore legend. Gary Williams played D1. Um, and so me being 14, I just, I would bombard their runs. Yeah. I'd rebound for them, I'd do whatever it took, and, and they, they took a liking to me. And also I met Danny Green, Jr. Uh, Danny Green's dad was a, a legendary local coach and worked out all the kids, and, and Danny was a very promising athlete, played football, basketball, and track. And we lived about two blocks away from each other. So being able to work out with a kid like Danny four hours a day, he loved it just like I loved it. Being able to work out with Jerry, who became um, a, a sought out reputable NBA trainer over the years. Yeah. Jerry trained Kobe and LeBron and KD and uh, Dwayne Wade. So um, those are my two guys. Uh, we played AU together growing up. And um, from North Babylon, I kind of made a name for myself playing varsity as a freshman. Um, I then realized that Catholic School League was a lot more competitive. St. Mary's, legendary coach Tim Cluse, St. Dominic's. Um, you know, so I went to St. John the Baptist okay. to play against the best athletes I could. Um, that were very promising. And um, a three-year career at St. John the Baptist, I played with a couple of Division I players. Um, I then wasn't big enough, you know, and so size is a big thing when you want to play Division I. 5'11", yeah, 155 yeah. pounds soaking wet. And uh, my parents helped me make a decision to go to prep school for a year. Okay. So I went to St. Thomas More Prep School uh, in New London, Connecticut. Um, Ed Cota went there, Quincy Doobie went there, Andre Drummond went there. Okay. Um, it's a very good prep school. Jerry Quinn is a legend up there. Another Division One coach and mentor I had, and um, and Jerry helped me understand the levels. You know, if you want to go high major, mid major, low major, and we watched a lot of film together. And he said, you know, are you talented enough to go high major? Probably. It just depends on what school needs a guard with your skill set. Yeah. Right? Could you play mid major? Definitely. Right? Could you play low major and dominate and be that guy? And so I had to make a decision on if I want to play right away. And a lot of my friends, including Danny Green. I had a lot of friends that went to Kansas, Georgia, Pittsburgh, Kentucky, uh, Florida University. Joe Kim Noel was my AU teammate, Danny Green, UNC. And certain guys had to wait until their junior, senior year to play. I'm a very competitive guy. Yeah. And I wanted to help my team right away with my experience and my skill set. So I chose a mid-major at St. Peter's University. And they had a 5'10 point guard named Keegan Clark. He was a senior when I was a freshman. He had led the nation to scoring twice really? at 5'10. Wow. He averaged you know, 27 his junior year. 29 his sophomore year, and so him being the nation's leading scorer, about my size, I figured why not learn from a guy like that, learn how to score and be a point guard. Um, and, and so I, I went to St. Peter's University, very small division one school in the MAC conference in Jersey City. Yep. Great business school. Um, I'm a business major. I, I love the stock market, Wall Street, and real mm -hmm. estate, so I got the best of both worlds. Right. To be able to play right outside of Manhattan, have my family come support me every game, um, be able to go to a Knicks game right through the tunnel, Holland Tunnel, 
Um, it was an incredible experience. Um, and so that was my journey, man. I played two years of Division I basketball at St. Peter's. My freshman year, I took the league by surprise. Um, we went to the conference championship and lost to a really good Iona team. Um, and I learned a lot losing my first year. I learned how I could have been a better leader, how I could have been more proactive, more film sessions, more weight room. And then Keijan graduated and played overseas, had a great 12-year career in Greece. Um, we're still in contact to this day. Uh, my sophomore year was my best numerical year because I played 38 minutes a game. My coach left, his wife, his wife had breast cancer, so um, that's something I went through as a player. And I try to help a lot of young players is whenever you choose a school, understand um, if the coach is going to be there for a long time or the coach is going to be there for a short time. Yeah. And so I know when I met you, I helped you with that. But my sophomore year, had a brand new coach, new system. He brought his own players in. Um, I, I made all the decisions. I played 38 minutes a game. I was about 13 points a game my sophomore year. I made second team, but we didn't win. You know, we were went from the championship to the second worst Division One team in the country. We were five and really? 25. Wow. Lost a lot of games by two, three, four, five points. And I, I took it real hard on myself. Um, and at the um, the peak of my sophomore year, I had to make a decision on do I want to be a talented loser or do I want to be part of a winning program. And so after my sophomore year, I made a decision and I transferred. I transferred to Long Island University with the legendary Tim Kloos, who coached my best friend Danny Green in high school. And Tim Kloos is a certified winner, yeah. Hall of Fame coach, all levels. And so I played Division II my last two years. And the best part about it was um, when you transfer from Division I to Division I, to sit out a year in red shirt. I already went to prep school. I didn't want to be a 24-year-old yeah. senior. Um, so going from Division I to Division II, I got the chance to play right away. I'm right back in Long Island. So the family support, I can really lock in on my craft and my academics. And I have a legendary coach. And the next two years of my college experience is better than my first two years. Really? And I tell people all the time about the level thing, man. Um, to be able to go to a Division II school, but it's ran better than most Division I programs, our weight room, our senior conditioning, our nutrition, um, our film sessions, everything with Coach Tim Kloos. Um, my junior year, we went 26-3. and We were the number 10 team in the country and I had a great experience. My senior year, we went 30 and 0. Really? Played with Nick Carter, okay. legendary Walt Whitman, Huntington guy, uh, me and Nick in the backcourt. We went 30 and 0. Um, dominated Division II. We had four Division I transfers on our team. Yeah. And so going 56 and 4 in two years versus my losing sophomore year, I learned a lot about the game. Yeah. And that opened up some overseas opportunities after I played. Um, I went to a lot of combines. I really did my thing. I really learned a lot about the game, playing on and off the ball in a defensive presence. When I graduated, it was very similar to COVID. We had a, a housing bubble. Wall Street had crashed. People were losing their homes, people were losing their jobs. So wow. I didn't really have an opportunity to get a great business job with my yeah. degree. And then the NBA had a lockout in 2010. So a lot of NBA guys were going to China. J.R. Smith and was going to China right, and guys right, going yeah. overseas. And that kind of like set up a, a domino effect overseas where level A guys were level B. Level B guys play level C. Mm -hmm. And then league guys are at level A. And so it's kind of a hard market for a young player trying to establish himself. Yeah. Um, so I ended up playing with the Harlem Globetrotters for two years, which was a great experience, man. And looking back at it, I made my 12-year-old self proud. You played ball for free, you had a scholarship, you played at your highest level, your, your, literally your athletic ability. Uh, I traveled the world, I played in 49 of the 50 states. I played in every NBA arena as a Globetrotter. I, I went to like 14, 15 countries. And so by the time I was 25 years old, I had made peace with my dreams of playing basketball, basketball yeah. you know, and it got to a point now I just wanted to be a productive member of society, make a little money, buy a house, move out of mom and dad's house, yeah. and I actually stopped uh, being around here for two years. I didn't play, no men's league, really? nothing. I just enjoyed being a regular person for a bit, you know, I gained some weight, 
I enjoyed the, the seasons. I, you know, uh, enjoyed Thanksgiving and Christmas for the first time in my life. Because understand, yeah. when you play Division One, you're not going on Thanksgiving. You're not going for Christmas. You don't go to spring break. Nah. You don't have your summers. Uh -uh. So 25 was the first time in my life I had a chance to support Danny, his career, you know, and, and um, you know, go to some NBA games as a fan and fall in love all over again. And then um, after about a year or two, I got back into coaching, you know, and I found some really good talent in Long Island, including yourself, you know, Tavon Ginyard and Mike Almonese and Femi, a lot of those young guys, Devontae Green, Danny Green's younger brother. I fell in love all over again watching the game through their eyes. And I want to be the biggest support system I could be as far as training them and coaching some high school and coaching some all-star games. And next thing you know, opportunity over to the St. Joseph's College, you know. I was 27 years old interviewing for a head Division III coaching job. And, um, and that's what happened. I became a Division III head coach yep. uh, before I knew it. I'm like, man, just like that, I'm on the other side of it wearing a suit, yeah. prepping game plans, prepping preseasons, going to games, recruiting, looking at young talented guys who had their dog in them. And I remember going to your Southampton games, man. You know, everybody called you white chocolate yeah. back then. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of the guys were scared of guards. I'm like, man, Zach got some game with him. And, and I think I reached out to you on Instagram yep. and um, you know, saw your LA Fitness. I wanted to play against you, see where your game was at. And I was okay, he's a real deal. And it was actually better for me coaching young guys. I produced like 4,000 point scores at St. Joseph's. Uh, we went to the championship my first year. Went to the playoffs two years after that. A couple years we didn't make it to the playoffs at all. Yeah. But it's a lot harder as a coach, man. Because no, you hang your, yeah, you hang your hat. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I couldn't imagine. Being able to, you know, prepare my players for games and, and watch them be good enough to dominate the game and getting behind the psychology of it. So it was great, man. And then after about five years at St. Joseph's, um, I started running basketball camps, you know, with Danny Green and my guys. We, we did uh, Texas basketball camps with the Spurs. We did North Carolina basketball camps at UNC. That's where Danny went. We, um, we got traded to Toronto Raptors. Yep. We've always done camps in Toronto for 10 years. So when he became a Raptor, it was easy peasy. We did a, a six-city basketball camp last year. Mm -hmm. And then as we're doing camps up in Toronto and the kids are loving it, we went to Montreal and Halifax and uh, Winnipeg and Vancouver. And then he gets a call from the Lakers. Yep. And they offer an opportunity and, you know, uh, just knowing the kid for 20 years, knowing the opportunity to build. Yeah. And he's a podcast now and we built a sporting event company. Um, you know, we did the camps every summer. So having an opportunity to move to L.A. Like a no-brainer, yeah. And watch my best friend play with LeBron AD every night. Yeah. It was it was very easy for me yeah. to just get it done. And, you know, so that's kind of my journey, man. You know, from being a, a snot-nosed kid in the park, trying to make it, to, to making it, to making it a little further and then helping other kids make it. Um, it's been my life calling, my passion. Yeah. I could talk about basketball for, for, for 10 hours straight without order. I could be in a gym with kids all day and I just want everybody to be the best version of themselves and know that, man, if I made it, anybody could make it. Yeah. Um, but I do realize that every kid needs a different resource. You know, you might be a little more knowledge of the background of the business. This kid might need nutrition. This kid might need weights. And so I just want to be an asset to anybody as they pursue their journey in the game. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, that's a great story, you know what I mean? Especially, like you said, like a Long Island kid. And, yeah. You know, a lot of us come up the same way. Mm -hmm. So like you said, like that transition from Chicago to here, like yeah. put you on a different pedestal mentally, I feel. Absolutely. To, uh, you know, fuel you for your future. Mm -hmm. um, so growing up, say with Danny, you know, what separated him? What separated him for, you know, the kids nowadays, you know, everyone, everyone I feel like is so in tune with social media and everything. Yeah. and. They have no idea like what it takes or, yeah. you know, like like you said, it's a business. So like what's gonna separate a pro, yeah. you know what I mean, from every other kid that thinks, oh I'm gonna go pro, I'm gonna go play division one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what separated him? Danny's so coachable, 
and he's such a gym rat, and he loves defense. That's what me and him just clicked. Mm -hmm. My defensive pedigree, his ability to block shots. Uh, I remember one of our first scrimmages, me being in ninth grade playing varsity. Danny was in eighth grade at the middle school, but he was playing varsity with me. Shout out to my other guy, Raheem Vanderpool, who's eighth grader with Danny. Okay. And Raheem's the head coach of North Babylon High School now. Yeah. But those are my two eighth graders. I'm in ninth grade. We were good enough to beat the seniors in a scrimmage. Really? Literally. So me running the point, Rakim on the wing, Danny down low. And Danny was only about 6'2 in eighth grade. He wasn't even mm -hmm. where he is now. And Danny was blocking shots at 6'7 guys. <laughs> then, um, you know, you know, our dads very closely have talks about going to private school and really running a private school show. But we always played summer ball together in North Babylon. So me, Danny, Rakim, uh, Danny's brother Rashad Green, uh, Greg Washington, a great shot block with the Hofstra. Us five as young guys, we go to Amityville and play AJ Price and Jason Frazier and give them a game. Yeah. We come to play Walt Whitman, Nick Carter, a goodio, Matt Ross, and yep. we beat them. So we knew that, man, we're freshmen beating the top juniors and seniors, but we don't play high school ball together. Yeah. And then, you know, we played with the Long Island Panthers, one of the top AAU programs. Um, me and Dane were role players. He was 14, I was 15, we're playing 17 and under. We barely got playing time, but we learned a lot playing with guys like Charlie Villanueva, guys like, um, you know, uh, uh, Jason Frazier, went to Villanova. So, uh, Danny was my guy because we could be students of the game first. We had no immediate validation. We had to grind it out, we could work out all the time, and, and that was really our, our younger days, you know? And what happened was, when his body caught up to his know-how, caught up to his shooting ability, caught up to his defense, um, Danny was a, a triple threat in high school. Yeah. He had great teammates, he could post, um, he had the three ball, um, he could make plays on the baseline, um, he was a shot blocker, he played on the perimeter, and so he wasn't what people expect him to be now as far as Danny Green used to be averaging 25. Right. He's always been a great glue guy. Yeah. And when you look at a guy like Iguodala or Draymond or Siakam, these guys that can play one through four, guard the other team's best player, make key shots, have championship pedigrees, one at every level, um, you know, there's a reason why Danny has two championships, a collegiate championship, a high school championship, is because he has that championship pedigree and he's selfless. He doesn't care how many points he scores if he can hold the other guy to half his average. Yeah. And he'll, he'll make the big shot when you need it, so. Yeah, no, Danny is fantastic mm -hmm. in his role. I've always you know, looked up to him and stuff like that. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on, obviously you being a head coach, yeah. you've dealt with the whole recruiting process mm -hmm. and everything, so. Nowadays with kids and the recruiting process, yeah. I feel like it's different. Even from like four years ago when I first got into it, five years ago when I first got into it, just uh, you know, the choices kids make in their college decision is, you know, it's huge. You only have four years, so you know, like you used to tell me, you know, you want to make those four years count, and Absolutely. like you want to, like you said, out of high school, you wanted to make an impact immediately. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these kids, you know, they're making impacts in high school, mm -hmm. and then they get there and they get lost in the shuffle, like lost in the mix, so. Yeah. Like what's like advice that you can give to you know young kids now mm -hmm. in their college decision and choosing the right school? Well first, you know, since seventh grade I knew basketball is a business. There are 350 Division I schools, 320 Division II, 400 Division threes. To make it to the Division I level with 350 opportunities as a guard under 6'2", you're more likely to get struck by lightning and bit by a shark. <laughs> so you have to identify what your game is. You were a great ball handler, create your own shot. That breaks down your choices to a third. You don't want to go to a school where they feature the big men. Right. You don't want to go to a school with a flex offense. So now you have 120 schools to choose out of. Number two, your athleticism. Division one is played above the rim. You know, I remember 
going down to visit Danny at North Carolina and I had a chance to play pickup with Ty Lawson. I thought I was fast. He was three times as fast as me, dunking with two hands on seven footers. Wow. Oh, that's major. That's yeah. ACC. Got it. I need to be right around here, <laughs> hitting the bottom of the backboard. So understanding where your game is at. Um, I would also say, are you a gym rat? A lot of fathers and trainers ask me all the time, is this kid, this kid? If you don't have a dire passion for basketball, like literally a third of your day, where even as a kid, I wake up, I could watch three hours of film, like a Kobe highlight tape or Michael Jordan come fly with me. Then I could shoot by myself for an hour and try to practice the things I saw in film. Then I wait for my boys to get out of school and play them for four hours. And then if I play bad, when they all leave and the streetlights come on, correct the things. And it was just by myself. That wasn't a dad or a coach pushing me. Division one players are around the game six, seven hours a day. And if you don't have the stamina to do that, it's gonna be very boring. You know, you're not gonna date. I didn't have a girlfriend until I was probably in my 20s. Yeah. You know, I have a part-time job at the ice cream store. Basketball's your job. School and basketball. So, you know, when I meet kids, I always say, what's your temperament for the game? You know, your body language. If I wanna make a D1, I have to be very coachable and take constructive criticism. So when I talk to a kid and I see he's sucking his eye, and sucking his teeth and rolling his eyes and can't take constructive criticism, yeah. You're probably not going to handle Division One culture because the head coach and five assistant coaches at your neck. Let's go, Zach. Get low. Slide. Touch the baseline. Run the floor. Hands ready. Get back on D. Who you got? You know how intense that is? That's every day for four hours. Yeah. I love it. You know what I mean? Some people and can't handle it. It's not. I was yeah, able to. A coach could blast me, but I learned at a young age: listen to the message, not the volume. And the minute they stop yelling at you, you should be more concerned. That means they don't care anymore. Exactly. So the Long Island culture is very entitled. You know, first of all, kids are playing multi-sports. Mm -hmm. Kids are playing football, basketball, track, baseball, up until 11th grade. Division one players only play basketball. Number two, the size. A good big man in Long Island, 6'3", 6'4". That's a small guard at the top levels. Yeah. So when I went to prep school and I'm playing, you know, Oak Hill or, you know, a, 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 a Laurenburg prep where Amari Stoudemire went, the guards are 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, I'm getting posted 45, 50 times a game <laughs> and I got to hold on without fouling out. But in Long Island, when a kid dominates and makes all Long Island, I'm like, hey, listen, a, a, a next level big fella, you're not getting 10 layups a game. Right. Because you're getting met at the rim by a 6'11", corn-fed big man, grabbing it with two hands on the backboard. So I would say if you love anything, I don't think you're gonna be a baker, a chef, a lawyer, a doctor, study your craft, look at the percentages, the risk versus reward, and play at the level you can play at. And I thought you could have been a dominant Division Three player. I thought you could have been a really good Division Two player. Um, but the route you took, I mean, I commend you for always fighting for your dream of making it that level because the end of it, when you look back at it five, ten years from now, I care more about who you became yeah. versus what you accomplished. And I think your journey going from the schools you went to in pursuit of your dream is going to serve you a lot better long term than if you stayed at one school and not, didn't have a chance to see what the world had to offer. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, that's why I told you before, like, I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change my story or anything mm -hmm. just because. I learned so much, met so many people. I could, you know, call someone in Louisiana, Texas, Virgin Islands, everywhere. So, and that's why another thing, like that was the next thing I want to get into, like how big is basketball as like a tool for life, and like yeah. not letting basketball use you and using basketball to, you know, better your life and opportunities and everything. Because you know that that's what I tried to do yeah. with basketball. So yeah, what, how did you use basketball? To, yeah. To get you where I you're at today. Initially, it was a confidence thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, growing up in Chicago in a dangerous neighborhood, you just want to fit in and, and not get yourself into a fight every day. So I knew that if I was good enough that people respected me, 
that I had to maintain reputation. Oh, don't don't ball the little fella. He's focused. He's trying to make it. You know, my teachers knew I wanted to play in college, so they knew I needed good grades, SATs, all that good stuff. And then after a while, I realized once I got there, it's like, all right, well, what do I want next? And so now that I did that, when I meet a young kid, I say, well, what's your intent for life? You know, being able to travel different countries and, and, and play in different countries. I noticed that in America, the instant gratification is really tough for a young mind. 15, 16, 17, I don't expect you to have life figured out. 18, 19, 20, 21 in college, you shouldn't have it figured out. If you're passionate, basketball is just a vehicle. This podcast is just a vehicle for you to pursue your passions, you know, and fulfill your purpose right. and to be happy every day. Um, when I meet professionals that need an alarm clock and a cup of coffee, I know they're not passionate. I don't need an alarm clock ever for practice. I was right. at 4 a.m. and get ready for a 7 a.m. practice because <laughs> I love what I do. Yeah. Um, so purpose and passion to me are more important than talent and skill level. Um, and I think that's extremely important when you're working with young people um, because we all go up the elevator at some level. You know, I've had friends that were way more talented than me and Danny at 15, but they didn't continue to work. They had no passion and, and they clocked out third floor. Yeah. I got friends that, are, you know, I see guys like Joe Kim Noah and Al Hoffer in the league and I was playing against them in college. I'm 34 now with gray hair and they're 35. LeBron's 36, Melo's 36. And I'm like, man, they're still on the elevator. God bless them for taking care of their body yeah. and sacrificing and not, not letting money and fame get to them and staying true to the game. So it's different for everybody. There's no uh, specific type of advice. Depends on a person and, and what they want to achieve in their life and, and, and that's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, pretty much, you know, I thought about basketball in a sense like there's so many things you can take out of it and apply them to real life. You know what I mean? Just like all the lessons you learn from coaches and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So what was, you know, some of the best? Was Kloos your best coach? Yeah, man. Tim Kloos, um, J.D. Walsh at St. John the Baptist. That's my trainer, Jerry Powell. Um, you know, I had great coaches at Billy Turner and Gary Charles AAU. My first AAU coach back when I was 12 years old, Terry Head back in Chicago. Um, what I loved about those coaches was they had a standard and we had to adapt to their culture. A lot of times what I see today is when one kid is talented and the rest of the kids know that that one kid's talented, the coaches let that kid dictate the culture. What happens when that kid leaves and gets injured? Then you don't have a team. Right. My coaches, hey, the first guy is good as the 15th guy. We all fall in line. And some of the lessons I learned about it was if we're locked in for the championship in March and we're all on the same page, we're willing to go through the journeys throughout the year, the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs. Man, I was a scrappy point guard, man. I, I would fight my teammates, I'd, I'd steal food from them, I'd, I'd make them break up with their girlfriend. Um, I woke them up with cold water in their face because I knew what it took to, to really be a winner. Mm -hmm. And now, some of those friendships I have 20 years later, I'm still checking them out, hey, what are you doing on Wall Street? What are you doing with your business? What are you doing with insurance? What are you doing, you know, as a, are you still being the best version of yourself, man? You know, and, and I just, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate that I found basketball at a young age because um, you know the, the, the goals I had of being a thousand point scorer or winning a championship, I take those same principles and apply to my, my business. You know, of how do I do great motivational speaking? Yeah. How am I a great life coach? How do I help people achieve their dreams? That's what I learned from the game. Time management, discipline, sacrifice, because I'm willing to give up the immediate gratification, maybe going to a party, going to a concert, celebrating a holiday, because cutting the net down in March is more important to me than anything from August to February. Yeah. So I can lock in better than anybody 
I know I can drink sink water and eat bologna sandwiches for months knowing that it's going the champagne will taste sweeter in March. Yeah. Um, I've had an opportunity to play with so many different teammates and, and different cultures. I've had African teammates, I've had you know Iranian teammates, I've had Japanese teammates and learning different cultures, speaking different languages, man, it's a big melting pot. And you know, unfortunately what's going on in the world right now with all the social injustice, sports is the one thing that brings it together. You know, so for all things going on with you know, uh, R.I.P. to George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and, you know, even uh, Jacob Blake, what they're going through and Breonna Taylor. Um, I wish humanity could learn from sports and the fact that we're all human beings yeah. and we all have something to bring to the melting pot. And it's unfortunate that we're going through these things right now. And, you know, uh, even with the politics and the government everything going on, we're also looking for our athletes to find solutions. Yeah. And so hopefully as people love the game and love the culture and love music and entertainment, they could also love the person. Yeah. And I think that's all we really have to really connect us right now. Do you do you agree with you know LeBron and them not wanting to play? Um, I think it was a specific situation. I think that they have to use their platform. Um, I don't think the average fan knows what these guys are giving up. I think the average fan just thinks about what they're making salary-wise. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So the fans will say, oh, he's making 15 million, he's making 30 million, he should. He's still a human being. Yeah. And as you hold your athlete accountable, the owners are the ones cutting the checks for 15 to 30 to 40 million dollars. Right. Owners making billions. And they have the power and the leverage because they support political campaigns. Yeah. The owners of these teams can make a couple phone calls to officials, to legislation, and to really look at specific cases. Um, because at the end of the day, no matter how much money these athletes have, they have brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and kids and moms and dads who aren't famous. And if I'm sacrificing my career um, living in a bubble in Orlando, what can I do for my family that's going through everyday uh, prejudice and supremacist and, and racial situations? So uh, I think it's more of a burden on their table. They can't lock in for just a championship and, and entertain the way they want to to fans. They hold the, um, they, um, they hold the responsibility of, of pushing the culture forward. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, unfortunately for a guy like George Floyd, who looks just like Steven Jackson, called him his twin brother. And Steven Jackson's a world champion, yep. almost NBA all-star, and has a platform with his podcast. He's speaking on ESPN. And if that was Steven Jackson, I personally believe the cop would have understood and asked for autographs. Absolutely. But it's George Floyd, and it's a regular person, and they take the same type of approach, and now the man's no longer here over a counterfeit $20 bill and a pack of cigarettes. So I think as the athletes kind of share with the world, you know, we want our culture to be appreciated and understood, and uh, we want to have the conversation and, and fix things and have a better country. America is still a beautiful country, but I hope that uh, we can all learn from each other and understand humanity leads. And I think we'll all be in a winning position. And that might not happen for, not in my lifetime, but maybe yours and, and your kids. Um, I think we can push forward. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100% with uh, you know, everything that they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, I think, like you said, like everyone just has to I don't know, I feel like it's more like, like you said, like just love and just... Love, and just, lead with love. Yeah, and just, I don't know, it's more just like, if you really sit down and just think mm -hmm. about like, like why do you feel that way? Mm -hmm. You know, some people, you know, I watch another podcast with Mike Studd, mm -hmm. and he just always, he's just like, the people that, you know, think that way and are racist and stuff like that, it's like, just sit them down and, and mm -hmm. feel for them, like, why, like, what made you first think, you know, have that thought in your head? Like, what was yeah. that thought process? Well, it's all learned behavior. It comes from a system. Yeah, it's so I, it's hard for me because I have amazing white friends and family. I'm, I'm Native American and black. I have a lot of Spanish friends and, you know, when we all come together, we do produce beautiful. That's one thing I love about New York City. 
even though I live in LA, I, I come back home and I miss our melting pot. Um, but unfortunately, it's learned behavior. Mm -hmm. And I don't really point at a person, I point at the system. Um, there were certain things built in place in this country hundreds of years ago that none of us can do anything about it today except you know, vote and try to change it. Um, but the system is what created a couple opportunities for certain cultures more than others. And so when you look at the system, then you can pinpoint why these group of people had a better opportunity for education or housing or bank financing right. versus this group or this group or this group. And I think that um, as we identify it and we can fix the system, I think humanity will fall in line. But until we address healthcare and you look at COVID and how it really hits certain cultures, mm -hmm. you look at um, you know student loans and housing, how it affects certain cultures, you look at certain redlining things, I don't blame a person or a group of people, I blame the system that was put in play. And it's our job to, like I said, acknowledge it, look at it, have healthy conversations about it, and make sure that the next two, three hundred years were a lot more um, successful and beneficial um, than the last three hundred years were. And you know, like I said, man, evolution life takes time. You know, but I, I would like to hope that what, what we see on social media, that we're talking about, everybody can have a sound mind. You know, I'll give you an example, man. You know, growing up in Chicago, I had a fifth grade teacher that was Jewish, Miss Golden, my favorite teacher, loving, compassionate, and she taught me about the Holocaust. I was 11 years old, and I saw, um, you know, the Jewish culture um, being put in gas chambers, you know, um, being burned alive, um, being killed because of their culture. And at 11, I made a choice that, man, I'm gonna empathize with that culture every day for the rest of my life. And I have amazing Jewish friends, and I respect where they come from. I understand how they stick together, and I think their culture is a lot to teach other cultures, right? And so the same way I can make that decision at 11 years old, no matter what my background is, no matter what I was taught in my household, right. I should empathize with their struggle. And you can go on and on. And on. I would like to hope that people can see um, what African Americans have gone through the last couple hundred years and look at it just for the facts and not for what you've learned mm -hmm. and empathize and then build better and build, move forward and push the culture because like I said, until all of us are free, none of us are really free, yeah. you know? So I think as we have that mindset and we have the proper leadership in play to do that, you know, like I said, 40, 50 years from now, we might see a better country. Yeah, yeah change is definitely something that we do need you know, mm -hmm. moving forward. And to touch back on, you know, with the NBA and stuff like that, with everything, you know, with all the social injustice and COVID and everything, it's like basketball is pretty much the only thing we have right now, positive, yeah, like going on. It's like everything, you know, baseball is going on, which is, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not a huge, I used to play baseball back okay. in the day, but I'm not a fan okay. much anymore to watch. But, you know, basketball is the NBA playoffs, so, you know, mm -hmm. this is what we want. So it was crazy to, that some of us thought like, wow, is there not going to be a championship this year or something mm -hmm. like that? So, but I'm glad, I'm glad they are finishing playing because mm -hmm. uh, I believe Barack Obama told them to play. Absolutely. Yeah, he said play, and mm -hmm. you know, because I think it's gonna, it's bringing a lot of positivity in the world, and that's what we need right now. Absolutely. And, you know, and now LeBron every culture, and, man. I yeah. mean, Luka Doncic is one of my favorite players. He's from Europe. Yeah. You know, Porzingis, Joel Embiid from Africa. Um, you know, Greek Freak. You know, it, it, uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Um, Toronto's a big melting pot. Marcus yeah. Sewell is one of my favorite big men. And Siakam and Oji and Anobi grew up in London. Yeah. You know, big melting pots. You know, Danny had a chance to play with the Spurs for eight years. You know, Patty's from Australia, and you know, Manu's from Argentina, and Tony's from France, and Boris is from France, and Tim's from the Virgin Islands. Virgin Island, yep. So, you know, as I got a chance to watch Danny's career 
and see all the international impacts he's had in his life has been a beautiful thing. And we love to travel, man. Every summer, you know, Danny's birthday is in June. We get out, go to another country, learn, do camps over there. And so I've had too much international experience and I've seen too much humanity and beautiful cultures to ever let hatred lead. And so I, I think the NBA guys understood their platform, no matter what they're going through internally. Um, they made a sacrifice to be there, and I think they're going to finish out. And I think that, um, you know, yeah, CP, Chris Paul, and LeBron being the forefront of the, the, uh, the presidents of the um, MVPA, um, they're, they're making some real huge pushes towards voting. You know, they're going to use their arenas to help people vote and, and help young people vote and get active. So it's a great thing. That's the beauty of basketball, man. That's a, I've, I've loved the game, I think, more than life itself most of my life. And so as COVID affected things and politics, um, you know, uh, I'm glad they got back. I'm glad these guys have a way of getting away from what's going on. And um, it, it really hurt me that a lot of seniors in high school couldn't finish their season, go to prom and go to college. A lot of my young college guys couldn't play in a tournament. You know, Devontae Green is in Greece right now, played at Indiana. He couldn't play in a tournament. You know, um, guys can do the McDonald's American game. You know, college guys couldn't showcase their skills. The NBA draft got pushed back. I have a lot of friends that are, you know, assistant general managers in the NBA. They can't even look at talent. So me being involved in this game for so long in different pockets, um, it was really crushing that we have to deal with what we're dealing with, with the health and the economy and, you know, in different policies and at the state level on top of, you know, kids not being able to play this beautiful game, you know? So um, it's very prayerful and um, I know over time, as things get better and improved, we come out stronger from this. Yeah. yeah, I think basketball is the best platform, I feel like, out of all the sports, just because it's so diverse, like you were saying. Absolutely. So I feel like all these guys can, you know, they'll never be in uh, another person's shoes, but they can see it because, you know what I mean, like, they're around so many different cultures and mm -hmm. they, they just see everything, you know, differently from the fan just looking in, like, all oh, these guys aren't playing or something like that so you know I think basketball is in the right you know going in the right direction with the platform using their platform in the right way absolutely um other than that man I mean pretty much you know touched on everything with you know your journey and everything um I would like to have you just talk about being a coach because I want to be a coach I wanted you to touch on that you know, a little bit just because after I get done playing, you know, mm -hmm. I do want to coach. I want to, I'm getting a taste of everything now knowing mm -hmm. that professional, the professional route isn't where I want to go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm getting a taste of podcasts, yeah. interviewing, yep. everything, but I definitely do want to be a coach because mentally I think I'm there for uh -huh. the game. I love it mm -hmm. and I feel like I can help, you know what I mean? I can help young guys and stuff like that and I would love to be a, a head coach head basketball coach at a college and be able to change a kid's life. You Absolutely. Know? So, yeah, what's some advice would, you, know, you the, get from me and other guys trying to be coaches, especially at such a young age? The first piece of it is do it for free, right? When I got back into coaching, um, I went to my alma mater, St. John the Baptist, had a young kid named Tavon Ginyard, who was a heck of a freshman, and I actually identified a lot myself in him. Yeah. And, you know, I think they gave me, like, 500 bucks as assistant JV coach. I didn't care about the money. I showed up every day like I was making $100,000 a year. Yeah. Um, coach Andre Edwards, team underrated, shout out to Coach Dre. Coach Dre let me run practices. All right, you do the drills, you do the team stuff, and so, um, you know, uh, do it for free. Don't look at it as a job. Number two, the player in you has to die. That's the biggest piece I can give you because 
you know how you felt about the game. You know what move you would do in transition. Yeah. You know what you would do with that ISO. You expect guys to do what Zach would do. Yeah. It's the hardest part is that allow the player in you to let go and learn how to be patient. Um, Steve Kerr was actually a coach that I actually studied him a lot because Steve had a great opportunity to go from great role player, champion with the Bulls and the Spurs, and then he goes to an analyst, then he becomes a GM for Phoenix Suns under D'Antoni and grows with Steve Nash, and then he goes to Golden State, but he had a wealth of experience, and he was very patient, and he understood that Draymond needs this, and Steph and Clay need that, and, and KD needs this, and Iggy needs that. As a coach, you're constantly thinking about the function of a group dynamic. So, I can't appease to my top three players without developing my top three young guys. And I have to have an identity. What is your identity as a coach? Are you a defensive-minded coach, Tom Tibbs? Are you an X and O guy, Brad Stevens? Are you a culture guy, Phil Jackson, uh, Greg Popovich? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, are you an adjustment guy, Nick Nurse? There's so many different types of coaches that you should spend about two years studying what your style would be and then who your muses would be. So for me, I'm a very defensive-oriented guy. I love transition, I love quick pace. And so I would take things from Tim Kloops, I would take things from D'Antoni, I would take things defensively from, you know, over here, and I'd take the spiritual side from a Phil Jackson, and I created my own version of it. And on top of that, because you're such a young guy, the benefit you have of being young going into coaching is you're young enough to connect to the players, mm -hmm but you need to be mature enough to understand administration. And that's the part that no one can train you for. Of yeah. You're responsible for their academic development. You're responsible for their uh, psychological and emotional support they need, man. You know, uh, for me, as a head coach, I had some of my players, their best friends passed away in a car accident. And I bring the whole team to the funeral. You know, um, every winter we would go to um, um, Stony Brook Children's Hospital and we would donate our time and our efforts. Uh, we uh, do soup kitchens, we did the breast cancer walk. My responsibility as a head coach was to give them um, life perspective, that what you got going on as a student athlete is one of the best opportunities in the world. You don't have to work, you're not struggling, you have your health, um, you're growing every day, you're being challenged every day, your success is my success, and years later, I could even get emotional and get led to tears. All my guys still contact me and need a letter recommendation or referral. My guys are getting jobs now. They're buying homes, they're starting businesses. And so as a Division III coach, my success and my achievement wasn't how many championships I hung up, it was the 20 year plan. I'm gonna be in these guys' lives for 20 years. You know, I have honorary grandkids. You know, some of my former players have kids and it's yeah. like, man, I get to, you know, watch their kids grow. I get to go to their weddings. I get to help them buy a home and get their first car and put together a financial plan. So um, coaching is so much bigger than the court that if the players know you care about them, they'll run through a wall for you. Yeah. But it has to be player driven first. It has to be a balance. And you're gonna learn and grow every day. And it's a 24 hour job every day of, is he doing the right thing? Am I recruiting the right way? Is this kid graduating? Is this kid developing? And if you wanna do it, man, I completely support you and you have all the resources you need. Um, but it's the most fulfilling feeling in the world. Yeah, yeah I, think, uh, I think that's my passion mm -hmm. where it was like, you know, basketball was only, Basketball playing was only going to take me so far, but I feel like the other end of it, coaching, I feel like that's going to be where I really excel just because I care and I enjoy, you know, helping people and bettering people's lives. And like you said, like coaching, like coaching the game itself is, is such a small part of it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's everything else from 
like you said, making sure they're mentally right, psychologically right. Um, you know, it's life at the end of the day, so I feel like basketball is such a small part. And um, like uh, when I had Femi on, he told me that his coach at DePaul was like, mm -hmm. he could go into the office and just, they, they wouldn't even talk basketball. It talk would just, be just talk about life and it becomes like a mentor. A family. So, yeah, like a big brother, yeah. father figure for some and, you know. That's I, what my dad told me, man. My dad told me two things, man. Inspire and be inspired. So I want to inspire the youth, they inspire me. But also the best kind of family is a family to choose. And so, even though I have biological family, a lot of my family are guys I played with, guys I played against, coaches I've had, yeah. you know, uh, we talk on a daily. Um, and that's the most beautiful part of the game is um, as you get to grow and identify your strengths and weaknesses, you're able to help others and vice versa. So that's the biggest thing, inspire and, and be inspired. Yeah, no, that's uh, definitely some good advice and I'm gonna take this. Uh, my guy. Everything, but uh, yeah, appreciate you, you know, coming on the journey. Uh, we'll. Uh, Definitely be in touch. We'd love to have you back on, you know, later down the road. Um, so you're going to L.A. What, Tuesday, yeah, right? Yeah, I'll be, I'll be back in L.A. soon, man. But like I said, anytime, I reach out. Let me know what's going on. And I, I love to see, you know, young people pursue their dreams. And I think these podcasts are important, especially during COVID. Yeah. Um, but the information is always valuable. And you're providing um, a platform for, for your following and, and pertinent information they might need during their journey. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, that's why I definitely, you know, I had to have you on because at least from, you know, when I was 16, 17, 18, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, when I used to talk to you in the office and, yeah. you know, just text and phone calls and stuff like that, like, yeah. you know what I mean? I, I needed that guidance Absolutely. growing up, so I definitely wanted to have you on because mm -hmm. whoever's watching, you know what I mean? I know they can get a lot out of this. And of course. They can relate, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? They can definitely relate, so two Long Island guys, so yeah, yeah. appreciate you coming on, man, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Of course, my oh, God, appreciate you.